Uh, let me begin this morning with a little story. Um, a hard story to share, but a really good story. Uh, when I was in eighth grade, I made a really big mistake. Probably the biggest mistake of my entire 13-year-old life up to that point. And uh, when my parents found out, oh, I remember it felt like my guts were on fire. And I was so ashamed. And in all honesty, I just wanted to die. Right then and there, it was that bad. And my dad was the one I had to face up to, and I had no idea what he was going to do. And you know how he responded? He gave me a hug. He gave me a hug. And we hardly even talked about what I did. And we didn't have to, because we were both brokenhearted over it. We both felt the weight of it. We both shed tears over it. It was certainly the worst day of my life, and I'm sure it was probably one of his worst days too. And so he just held me, tight and close. And for me to receive that kind of mercy and to experience such nearness to my dad in the moment of my life that I knew I deserved the most severe punishment for me, that act, that unexpected embrace of me in my sin made me feel like maybe my 13-year-old life wasn't over just yet and that maybe there was some hope for me still. And you know, the way my dad responded to me in my sin that day 17 years ago is uh, kind of like how God the Father responds to us in our sin, if we are his children. Instead of pointing the finger, he opens his arms. Instead of pushing us away, he pulls us in. And instead of punishing us as we deserve because of Jesus, who was punished in our place, it's just grace upon grace upon grace upon grace for us. And this is what our passage this morning is all about. It's all about how God the Father gently and tenderly and mercifully and lovingly responds to us, even in our darkest sins. And it is so encouraging. I'm so excited this morning because this is so encouraging. And if the Holy Spirit will be pleased to move upon us this morning through the preaching of this word, I know that this word from Jeremiah will sweep us off our feet and carry us into the heart of God. I know that's what will happen this morning. And if that's what you want this morning, um, if you want not just to learn about God's love, but to actually experience God's love, if that's what you want this morning, then pray with me and let's ask that God will do just that. Let's ask that God will come and grab a hold of our hearts and carry us into his. You want that? Can we pray for that? Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy inspired, inerrant word this morning. 
Lord, I know that you have wonderful things planned for those who will have ears to hear your word this morning. And so, Lord, please, please give us the grace to listen and to comprehend and to respond appropriately and to be changed, Lord, by your word for your glory alone. And, and Lord, I just ask, please help us to see you as you are this morning. A uh, gentle, merciful, loving Father. And Lord, I ask, may, may seeing you move us to come to you, knowing that we'll be met by a yearning heart full of mercy, Lord, we pray. Amen. So here's the backstory to our passage this morning. Um, so God has called his prophet Jeremiah to go to the southern kingdom of Judah, to the Judeans. Okay, so remember this. In the Old Testament, uh, God's people exist in these two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, Israelites, Judeans. So God has called his prophet Jeremiah to go to the southern kingdom of Judah, to the Judeans, to plead with them to repent of their rebellion and sin against him and to return to him. And if they won't, uh, if they refuse to respond to, to Jeremiah's message, then God is prepared to give them over, to give his people over into the hands of the wicked king Nebuchadnezzar to be taken away from their land into exile in Babylon. Okay, that's the situation here. And so here's a good question. What in the world were the Judeans doing that was so bad that God was prepared to banish them to Babylon? Well, here are just a few things God says. He says that they made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands, chapter 1, verse 16. And they turned away from the Lord and went after worthless things, chapter 2, verse 5. And they prophesied by the pagan god Baal, chapter 2, verse 8. And they forsook the Lord, the fountain of living waters, for broken cisterns hewn out by their own hands, chapter 2, verse 13. And they worshipped lifeless idols made of wood and stone, chapter 2, verse 27. And they turned their backs on God, also chapter 2, verse 27. And they murdered, they murdered the prophets God sent to them, chapter 2, verse 30. And they forgot God, days without number, chapter 2, verse 32. And they divorced their spouses and went after other lovers, chapter 3, verse 1. And they were obstinate, stubborn, and unrepentant in their rebellion, chapter 3, verse 3. And they did all the evil they could possibly do, chapter 3, verse 5. And they took their unfaithfulness to God lightly, chapter 3, verse 9. And they followed their own evil hearts rather than God's own word. And all that... All that I just said, that was all just in the first three chapters of Jeremiah. That was, that was just a Tuesday afternoon for the Judeans. And for the next two dozen chapters, for the next two dozen chapters, God just keeps calling them out in their sin. And trust me, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And it is exhausting to read. And here are just a couple passages that stood out to me as being particularly awful uh, listen to this, chapter 5, verse 12. They have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, 
He will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. They were essentially saying, I don't buy it. I'm calling his bluff. He's not going to do anything. Wow. Chapter 7, verse 31. And they have built the high places of Topeth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrificial offerings to false gods. Chapter 8, verse 12. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. And you know, it's, it's easy for us to look at these unashamed, child-sacrificing, unbelieving, heart-following, unrepentant, adulterous, murderous, back-turning, false-worshipping Judeans and say, wow, they were pretty terrible people. I'm glad I'm not like them. It's easy to say that, but is it true? Are we really so different than them? I mean, haven't you ever sinned unashamedly? You knew it was wrong, but you just did it anyways and and didn't care. Maybe because you thought you deserved it for some reason. Or maybe because everyone else was doing it. Or maybe because you were able to justify it somehow. Haven't you ever sinned unashamedly? Haven't you ever sacrificed your own child? Not literally, but figuratively. Maybe you knew that they deserved your time, but you spent that time elsewhere. Or maybe you knew that they deserved your attention, but you gave your attention to something or to someone else. Or maybe the one thing they wanted more than anything in the world was to just play with you. But you made excuses and just put them in front of the TV or put an iPad in their hands so that you could do what you wanted to do? Haven't you ever sacrificed your own child? And haven't you ever followed your own heart rather than God's own word? You you operated more by your own feelings than by what you knew was true according to God's word. Maybe you uh, allowed yourself to continue in sin, making excuses for it even though God's word says that you're no longer a slave to sin because Christ has set you free from sin's power. Or maybe you got into a relationship with an unbeliever because you just had such intense feelings toward them, even though God's word warns us against being unequally yoked. Or, or maybe, maybe you allowed yourself to drink just a little too much because it was a special occasion or because it was a painful occasion, even though God's word tells us to not get drunk on wine, but to be filled with what? To be filled with the Spirit and to always be sober-minded. Haven't you ever followed your own heart rather than God's own word? And haven't you ever committed adultery, maybe not literally, but figuratively, with your eyes, with your mind, with your heart? Jesus says in Matthew 5, 28, that if you even look, Upon a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Or 
Haven't you ever murdered anyone? Again, maybe not literally, but figuratively, wishing someone dead or having someone become dead to you in your heart. Because you know what the Apostle John says in 1 John 3.15? If you hate your brother, you're a murderer at heart. Haven't you ever turned your back on God? You were going this way toward the Lord, but then you turned around and ran back that way away from the Lord? Haven't you ever turned your back on God? And haven't you ever worshipped a false god? You've, you've put something that is not God in the position of God in your life, and from sun up to sundown, it was that thing on your mind. It was that thing that you were living for. It was that thing that was truly the deepest desire of your heart. Haven't you ever worshipped a false god? And only you can answer those questions for yourself, but for me, I'll just tell you, the unfortunate answer to all of them is, yeah. Yeah, I, I am guilty of having been a false, worshiping, back-turning, murderous, adulterous, heart-following, child-sacrificing, and sometimes unashamed sinner. I have been just like the Judeans. And I know that I deserve for the gavel of God's justice to come down and for the pronouncement upon my life to be off with his head. I know that's what I deserve before the holy God. And that's what we all deserve because the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. That, that, that's what our sin earns us. That's what our sin makes us deserving of. Which is what makes our passage Jeremiah 31, 20. So remarkable. Because God responds to his people's damnable, death-deserving sins more gently and tenderly and mercifully and lovingly than they could have ever imagined. Than we could have ever imagined. Here's what he says. Here's our passage this morning. Jeremiah 31, 20. Oh, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. So let me make uh, just three observations and then I'll give an application for each, okay? Three observations and an application for each. So here is observation number one from this passage. The children of God are forever dear and darling to the Father. The children of God are forever dear and darling to the Father. Look again at the first two lines of the verse. Is Ephraim, which uh, is kind of a nickname we see for God's people in the prophets, is Ephraim my dear son? Oh, is he my darling child? Now, of course, these are rhetorical questions, right? God is not asking, hmm, uh, are my children really dear to me? Are they really darling to me? 
No, no, God is making a statement about his affection for his children. But as one commentator puts it, it's poetically clothed in the gentleness of a question. Right? Do you see that? It's, it's an emotional expression from a God who is not wondering if he really does love his children so deeply, but from a God who is declaring that he really does love his children so deeply. Oh, are they dear to me. Oh, are they darling to me. Now, think about this. If you were out in public and you saw over there somebody else's kid, because of course your kid would never do this, neither would mine, but you saw somebody else's kid throwing a temper tantrum and screaming like a demon and just being outright rebellious and nasty, you might look over there at that kid and call him what? A brat? A monster? a sociopath, <laughs> something worse maybe, right? But think about this. How much more have you and I and the people of Judah, how much more have we been absolute brats and monsters and sociopaths and much, much worse before our Heavenly Father and yet he calls us dear and darling. And why? How? Because thankfully, our sin is not our identity. Thankfully, our sin does not define who we are. Thankfully, my sin does not define who I am. But, but don't we find ourselves often being tempted to believe just that in our sin at times? Don't we sometimes sin and then think to ourselves, oh, I am blank. I am that thing I just did. I am an idiot. I am a freak. I am a fool. I am a letdown. I am a loser. I am a failure. I am worthless. I am Pathetic. I am disgusting. I am nothing. I am nobody. Let me tell you, my friends, Satan would love nothing more than for you to wear that sin and to call yourself by that sin and to think that that sin is who you are because he knows that you will keep on stiff-arming God, keeping God at arm's length, when you're deep in sin and will not turn around and run back to him if you think that God sees you as just an idiot, just a failure, just a loser, just worthless, pathetic, disgusting. But that's not what God thinks of you. If you are his child, he calls you dear. And darling, precious, treasured, cherished, beloved. So here's an application. Let God define you himself. 
especially in your sin, let God define you himself. Don't go on defining yourself. Don't let others define you. Certainly don't let Satan define you. Let God define you himself. Why? Because he is your creator who foreknew you, Christian, before the foundation of the world and in love, in love predestined to adopt you as his dear sons and darling daughters. And remember this, what it took for God the Father to adopt you as a dear son or a darling daughter was him giving up another dear son a son who had to leave the presence of God so that you could be brought in. A son who had to bear all your sin and shame so that you could be unburdened of all that disgusting nastiness that had to find you. A son who had to die so that you could live. And so if you, Christian, if you have been made alive and have been unburdened of all that damnable, disgusting sin and have been brought in, brought near to God, then let the Father in whose arms you are being held, let him call you what he will and believe him. Believe that you are who he says you are. You are dear to him. You are darling to him. And all you need is to look to the cross to know it's true. He loves you unto death. He loves you unto death. And so in your sin, remember that you are a dear son, a darling daughter of our heavenly father. That's your identity in Christ, not your sin. Observation number two. The children of God are remembered not in light of their sins, but in light of the Father's unfailing, steadfast, covenantal love. The children of God are remembered not in light of their sins, but in light of the Father's unfailing, steadfast, covenantal love. Look again at the third and fourth lines of the verse. For as often as I speak against him, or uh, for as often as I recount his sins, which, by the way, God did that for 29 chapters. The first 29 chapters of Jeremiah, it's just God recounting their sins. (laughs) For as often as I speak against him, here's what God says, I do remember him still. And and when God says here that he remembers him, Ephraim, his people, uh, he's obviously not saying uh, that by remembering his people are coming to mind, right? Because obviously his people are already in his mind as he's speaking against them. So he's using this word remember, not in a... uh, cognitive recollecting sense but in a covenantal relational sense and and God actually does this often in scripture he talks about remembering his people in a sense where 
the implication is that he's remembering them in light of his love or in light of his mercy or in light of his covenant. Kind of like, remember this? Kind of like how Hosea remembered his wife Gomer after she had been unfaithful to him. And what came to mind for him was not that she existed, but what came to mind was his love for her and the covenant promise he had made to her at the altar for better or for worse. And so though things had taken a serious turn for the worse, he pursued her and found her and then lovingly said to her, Gomer, you are mine. Come home. That's what God is doing here. He's remembering the people whom he loves. As one commentator puts it, not as the alternative, alternative to forgetting, but as the alternative to forsaking. He's remembering them in light of his unfailing, steadfast, covenantal love. And look again at what he says. He says, for as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. So think about this. If God were to keep a record of all your wrongs, a long, long, long list stretched miles long as far as the eye can see, perhaps 29 chapters deep, just like with the Judeans, if God were to keep a record of all your wrongs, God's essentially saying that there would be another column on that sheet running parallel to all those sins which would provide a loving answer to each and every one. And it might look something like this. Sin, forgiven. Sin, pardoned. Sin, blood was already shed. Sin, the debt's already been paid. Sin, it's already been atoned for. Sin, my covenant is sure. Sin, I have grace upon grace for him. Sin, I will never leave or forsake him. Sin, I have unending love for him. Sin, he is mine forever. Sin, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate him from my love. For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Isn't that cool? If you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, you have a loving answer for each and every sin. Even the deepest and darkest ones at the very bottom of the list, the ones that make your guts feel like they're on fire and that you are so ashamed of and that you would rather die than have anyone ever find out about, God has a loving answer for each and every one. And so here's an application. Let God answer for your sin. 
let God answer for your sin. And what I mean by that is this. Don't try to create your own column on that hypothetical list to give an answer to your sins. Please don't. Whether it's a column of excuses or a column of good works or whatever, because it doesn't work that way. You can't excuse or cancel out or overwrite or disappear your own sins. You can't. And if you try to do that, it just shows that you don't really understand the gospel at all. Because the, the biblical picture is that we all, by nature, essentially sit on death row, awaiting our eternal execution because of our lifetime of sin against the holy God. And what doesn't work when you're on death row, doesn't work with a just judge at least, what doesn't work is making excuses or making threats or making deals or saying that you'll try really hard to do better or saying that uh, deep down you're really a good person. None of that works. None of that works with a just judge. But what does work, at least it worked once, what does work is a sinless substitute, someone innocent and perfect and full of infinite merit stepping into your cell and saying to you, I'll take your spot. I'll die in your place so that you can go free which is what Jesus did for all who will repent of their sins and turn to him in faith. And so let God answer for your sin. That's the application of this point. Let God answer for your sin. Don't try to right your own wrongs. Show God a list of all the good things you've done. Don't try to do that because you can't right your own wrongs. You're not good enough. Nobody can escape death row by trying to be a better person. And don't try to make excuses for your sin because that just, that just cheapens the cost of Calvary, right? Because Jesus had to die for those sins. They should never be taken lightly. You can't just excuse sin away. And don't try to make any deals with God because you have zero bargaining power. <laughs> like there's a reason we sing, nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we must cling. Amen? So let God answer for your sin. And in your sin, remember that you are remembered in light of the unfailing, steadfast, covenantal, answer-giving, death-defeating love of God. Which leads us to our final observation, observation number three. The children of God are yearned for by a father full of mercy. The children of God are yearned for by a father full of mercy. Look again at the last three lines of our passage. 
Therefore, my heart yearns for him, Ephraim, my people. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Um, Do you know what it means to yearn for something? It means to desire it intensely. Like when you've climbed a mountain without a drop to drink, you yearn for water. Or when you've been away from your family for too long, you yearn to be with them, right? Yearning is intense, longing, almost aching desire. It's it's the kind of desire that made the father of the prodigal son run out to meet him and to embrace him and to kiss him and to throw a feast for him upon his return. He yearned for his son, yearning. And what does the text say? It says that God has that kind of desire for you. (laughs) He longs for you. He longs to be with you. He longs to hold you. He longs to comfort you. He longs to be everything to you. He longs for your heart to rest in his. Christian, he longs for your heart to rest in his. That same heart that has pursued false gods and has turned its back on him and has sinned unashamedly, that ugly, ugly heart, God longs for it. God longs for you. He yearns for you. And when you've messed up big time and you wonder how God is going to respond to you in his sin, in your sin, he says here that when you come to him repentant, he will surely, double positive, truly, truly, it is certain, he will surely have mercy on you. Meaning, when you come to him saying, oh Lord, forgive me for worshiping false gods, he'll say to you, I forgive you, and I love you, and I am still your God. And when you come to him saying, oh Lord, forgive me for turning my back on you, he'll say, I love you and I forgive you and I am still never turning my back on you. And when you come to him saying, oh Lord, forgive me for sinning unashamedly, he'll say to you, I forgive you and I love you and I am going to keep on forgiving you and keep on loving you unashamedly. And so here's the application here. Let the love of God lead you to repentance. Let the love of God lead you to repentance. So let, let's step back for just a second. So this morning, we have come face-to-face with the reality that we are just as guilty as the Judeans before the eyes of the holy God. We've worshipped things that are not God. We've turned our backs on God. We've sinned unashamedly. We've, We've done it all. We've done it all. 
And God has responded by saying, yes, you've done all those things, and they break my heart. But you are not those things. You are not your sin. You are my dear sons and darling daughters. That's who you are. And then he said, and I will remember you in light of my unfailing, steadfast, covenantal love. I have a loving answer for each and every one of your sins, even the deepest and darkest ones. And then he said, and hear this, I yearn for you. I yearn for you. Please come home. And don't be afraid, because I will surely have mercy on you. So what's the point of all this? The point is that he wants you in his arms. He wants you in his arms. God the Father wants you to repent and come home. He wants you not to just know about his love, but he wants you to actually experience his love. He wants your heart resting in his. This, this morning, this morning is an opportunity for every one of us to let the love of God lead us to repentance so that, so that he doesn't have to resort to using his discipline to lead us to repentance as he had to do with the Judeans. Because you know how they responded to this message from Jeremiah? They took one look at it and said, yeah, no thanks, we'll take our chances in Babylon. And that's what happened. Oh, I pray that nobody in this room has that attitude this morning. I pray that no Christian, no one who knows the Lord in this room this morning has that kind of attitude. Because here's the truth. Uh, you can be like our old friend Jonah. <laughs> Remember him? You can be like Jonah, and you can try to run from the Lord, and you can try to hide from the Lord, but he is never going to give up pursuing your heart, even into the depths of the sea. And it would be much, much better for you to repent now when God is lovingly calling you than to wait to repent later after he's been forced to throw you overboard. And so today, 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 no matter who you are or what you've done, come home to the Father through Jesus he is lovingly calling you. He is ready to receive you. The cross has flung open his arms to you forever. And when you come to him, he will hold you tight and close because he is a father who loves you. God loves you. Amen. Let me pray. Oh Lord, I am just, um, I'm just astounded by how you love us. By how you love me, Lord, that, 
that you have loved your people even unto death, even the death of your own dear son. Lord, it is an astounding reality that ought to just bring us to our knees in repentance every day and ought to cause us to rejoice that we belong to you every day. Oh, but Lord, we are, we are so, so weak. We're, we're often much more willing to entertain the temptations and desires of our own hearts and to act like we are the gods of our own lives than to submit to you and to follow you and to walk with you and to give our hearts to you. And Lord, it's awful. I know it breaks your heart, your yearning heart. So Lord, I just pray that this morning that your love for us would overwhelm and swallow up our love for our own sin. Um, Lord, that your love for us would change the desires of our hearts and would move in us to repent and would make us hate our sin and would make us run after you each and every day, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, trusting, Lord, that when we come to you, you will receive us more gently and tenderly and mercifully and lovingly than we could have ever hoped for or imagined because that is the kind of God you are. That is the kind of Father you are. Oh Lord, we pray all these things for your glory alone and in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.